Thank you for joining us today for the Church of Rock Calgary podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us or have any questions, please email info at cotrcalgary.ca. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Today, I get to wrap up our series that we've been in called Big Butts of the Bible, not to be confused with B-U-double-T, it's just singular T. How many of you have been enjoying this series so far? Maybe you're, some of you are like, I'm sick of it, ready for it to be done. But you know, I've been enjoying it. There have been several messages uh, that my dad has spoken specifically that have really impacted me and blessed me. And we've been looking, if you're unfamiliar with the series, we've been looking at some of the contrasts in the Bible between our perceptions on life and God's perceptions on life. And so I won't, there, I think there's seven parts to it. So you can go and check those out on our website. Can't really give you a recap of everything. But before I jump right into that, I'm going to pray one more time. Why create a clear separation? Kind of help give us a fresh start. Otherwise, you can just talk, talk, talk. It's kind of a marathon. So let's pray. If you would close your eyes one more time. Father, we thank you. Thank you for this word that I believe that you have given to me, that you've been speaking and challenging me with. Lord, it's, it's, I believe there's hope in it. There's fresh life in it. And I believe that, uh, I pray that it would rest and set um, in our hearts, Lord, the way it's supposed to. Lord, I, I pray that nothing that I say would come out wrong. I pray that your words would flow through and you would impact each of us today because I believe you have hope for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to start today by looking at uh, a verse or a couple verses in Jeremiah chapter one. The words are on the screen for you. Jeremiah one says this. The word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Today, what I want to take us to, uh, what I want to take us on, is a journey in this last part of our series to reclaim the purposes of God for our lives. Because the truth is, whether you believe it or not, we all were created with a purpose. Everything in that verse applies to us. And that last part, I pointed you. That's what God reveals to us as we walk through life with Him. What He has appointed us for. And even if you don't fully know what that is yet, what you've been appointed to, the Bible's clear that we've all been intentionally designed by God, his handiwork, created in his image to do good works, is what the Bible says. And I want to start this morning by briefly looking back at the last message I preached in this series, which was called, Not a Fan, But a Follower. We have holy rain coming down from the ceiling, so you'll see that. It's just the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It's going to keep going the whole time, so you can... Rest without a doubt that this message is from the Lord. There it is again. So in the message, uh, not a fan, but a follower, I shared how the Bible describes a follower of Jesus as someone who loses in this life. If you weren't here, that probably sounds very depressing. In Matthew 16, it's not that depressing. Jesus said there was a crowd who was following him and he turns to them and he says this. If anyone would come after me, He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. If you fail to lose in this life, you'll end up losing in the next, is what we unpacked in the last message. 
What does that mean? What does it mean to lose in this life? Jesus said, do not store up treasures for yourself here on earth. That wasn't, that's not the point of why you're here. Instead, we lose our time and our talents and our treasures for God's purposes. This includes our energy. We give up our energy. We give up money. We give up comfort. We give up habits. Are any of those things wrong in and of themselves? No, that's not what I'm saying. They're not wrong. It's not wrong to have good things. Our God is a good father. He gives good gifts. They're not wrong unless they cause us to live more for this life than for eternity. Because followers live for eternity. They live like they were created for eternity. Like today is temporary and tomorrow is forever. But we also talked about, you don't just lose those things. You also lose things like shame and bitterness, addiction, hurts and sin. The grime that the world tries to stick on us and drag us down with. We lose the good and the bad. With the ultimate reality being that we need to lose our very lives for Jesus. We offer ourselves up to be used for his purposes whenever and wherever and however. That's what it means to be a follower. If you missed the message, I encourage you to check it out online. I don't have time to do it justice again this morning. But as, after I preached that message and as I've been, you know, continuing to walk with the Lord the last few weeks and stuff, I realized there's actually a second part to that message that is equally as important. How many of you would agree that it's possible to know what to do, the right thing to do, and then with good intentions try our very best to do it, but end up getting it wrong and getting hurt in the process? I know I've experienced that. And for those of us who get hurt enough times, Many of us give up. We give up our faith. We give up trying. Some people even give up their very life. And in the last message, not a fan, but a follower, we looked at Matthew chapter seven, where Jesus talks about what it takes to get to eternity. And he says this, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many, many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Scary reality. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Did you know that you can spend we can spend our whole lives working for God and yet never really come to know him. That's really what Jesus is revealing in that scripture. It's not enough to go through the actions. It's not enough to do the right things. Christianity has always and will always be about relationship, not about a life full of achievement. Now, later on in that same gospel, Matthew chapter 25, Jesus shares a parable with a bit of a similar conclusion. But I got to give you a little bit of context before we go there. There's a bit of scripture today, but I think sometimes it's good for us to read the word of God. So Jesus is coming to the end of his life and his ministry here on earth. He's coming to his death on the cross. And so he begins to talk to his followers about the day of judgment. Judgment. What does that mean? Essentially, it was the end of life as we know it, either for each of us individually, when we all die eventually, because we will, 
hate to break it to you, or the end of the world when Jesus returns for the second time. So he uses a story of 10 virgins. You might be like, whoa, what did I walk into? Virgins. Think of maidens, virgins, maidens. They were part of a Jewish bridal party who were waiting for the bridegroom to arrive. Why are they waiting for him to arrive? Where is he? In Jewish custom, there were several phases to a marriage, each which took time and preparation. And this was the final phase where the bridegroom would show up unexpectedly to be united with his bride. I don't know about you. I don't think Lauren would have liked it if I was just going to show up unexpectedly. Here I come. Are you ready for me? Right? But that's, apparently that's how things went. And that's where Jesus picks up in this story, Matthew chapter 25. He says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins. There's our virgins. Who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. Very plain. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. Lauren wouldn't have liked that. And they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then the virgins, all the virgins, woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, Jesus says, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. The title for my message today in the last installment of our series is not empty, but full. Would you turn to a person next to you and tell them, don't live empty? You said it, don't live empty. In this story, what we have is an example of Christians who are waiting to be united with Jesus. In eternity, it's a parable, which means it's a short story that's explaining something bigger, something deeper. When you and I put our faith in God by confessing with our mouths and believing with our hearts that Jesus is Lord, the Bible says that you and I become the light of the world. Matthew 5, Jesus says it. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. What's he talking about here? He explains it. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. What is our purpose as Christians? I kind of opened up with that. We've all been appointed. We all have a purpose. Like the ten virgins, we've all been given a lamp to shine before others, that they may see our good deeds. That's what salvation is. We get a lamp to shine. But what good deeds? Success, fame, wealth, prosperity? No, we kind of unpacked that in the last message. Instead, Jesus says in in that same chapter, he says generosity, sacrifice, selflessness, perseverance amidst persecution, everything that comes with losing our lives for Jesus. 
To keep the light shining means to keep on losing, losing until we meet him. But this story reveals two kinds of Christians who are about to meet Jesus, those who were wise and those who were foolish. Do you remember what the distinction was between them? In verse three, it said, the foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. Both groups have received their light. By definition, both are Christians. Both are followers of Jesus. Have you ever thought of that? That's why this story and the one we shared about the last time, they're kind of a bit of a scary reality. Whoa, you mean you can follow Jesus and yet somehow still get shut out at the end? I never knew you. I don't know you. Why was that the case? What separates them is that only half of them had enough oil to keep their light burning until Jesus appeared. Why was that? Because they didn't know the timing of his return. They didn't know how long they would have to keep the light going for. So half of them were prepared and brought what was needed, and the other half was not prepared. I have two points I want to share with you this morning. And the first one is shorter. It's really just a reiteration of the last message. As Christians, did you know it is possible for you and I to undercompensate for our faith? Undercompensate. You might be thinking, hold on, what? Don't get me wrong, salvation is free. It's a free gift. That's what the Bible says. We are saved by grace through faith so that no one can boast. No one can point to themselves as their own savior. But when we receive the light of salvation, we receive our purpose from God. Our life mission, which is to let our good deeds glorify God. But good deeds isn't determined by society, isn't determined by our world. It's determined by Jesus, who said that you and I need to lose, lose our lives. But here's the warning. If we fail to grasp our purpose or we forget it along the way, we end up living this life for ourselves and we treat the light we've been given more like a token or a souvenir, something that might even get mistaken with all the other good intentions of our lives, something that ends up getting buried in our closets, hidden underneath all of our junk. That's what Jesus was saying. He said, people don't hide a light underneath a bowl. You don't put it in a closet. You don't tuck it away. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house everyone in your family, everyone in your neighborhood, in our city. Our salvation was never meant to be hidden or reduced to a good lifestyle choice. Because if that happens to us, we've obviously forgotten what we were saved from. You were lost. You were broken. You don't have a hope in heaven to save yourself on your own. Not only that, but what we were saved for, an eternity that we don't deserve, but God generously gives to us. We end up undercompensating for our faith. For some of us today, the message is the same as last time. We just need to hear again that God is warning us in love, because he's a good father, to not hide our light anymore. To stop treating our salvation like a club membership. To quit being foolish like the five virgins and instead start shining in our world. We might be thinking, okay, fine, I give. How do we do that? We need oil. Not just a little, but a reservoir of oil, fuel to keep our light shining until eternity. You might be thinking, 
where did that come from? Where's oil? If you're not familiar with Christianese, it just sounds kind of weird. We're talking about oil. Here's what you need to understand. It's symbolic of something. Just like the light represents our God-given purpose through salvation, then the oil represents something as well. Because it said in verse 4, the wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. So here's the background, the context. In the Old Testament of the Bible, oil, and this is olive oil, this is not petroleum, fuel, that type of thing. That would have, you know, combusted really well. Oil was used for many practical purposes, such as cooking, fire, things that we might still use it for today. It was also used for sacred purposes, such as anointing, anointing priests, kings and rulers, setting people apart, and for keeping the lamps burning in the temple of God, his presence, keeping his presence illuminated. From evening until morning, it was a temple priest's duty to refill the oil and keep the lamps from burning out. That's what they did. But here's the cool part. This is why you have to read your Bible. This is why, don't just discount the Old Testament because it's really cool to see how it all flows together. After Jesus came and lived and died and rose again, he ascended into heaven so that his Holy Spirit could be released and come and dwell inside of us. No longer do we need to go to the temple to experience God's presence like they did in the Old Testament. We, as people, become his temple, possessing his Holy Spirit. And the light that once shone in the temple is now the light that shines from us. Kind of a cool contrast. From evening until morning, the light was shining, illuminating the dark, now we shine providing light in a dark world. Do you see the connection? And the oil that was used for the, to fuel the light is now the Holy Spirit that fuels us. That's how it's supposed to be. After a Christian receives salvation, you pray the prayer, you raise your hand, you accept Jesus. What should, should come next, we believe this as a church wholeheartedly, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit to be filled full of God's presence, all power and life needed to fulfill his purposes for our lives. But just as it is possible to be full, so it is possible to be empty. And when you or I live an empty life, one that is so focused on making a name for ourselves here on earth, living for retirement, enjoying all the things, losing track of time until Jesus. We come face to face with our maker and our jar that he gave us is empty and our light has burnt out. And just as the five foolish virgins experienced it is possible to wave the banner of Jesus your entire life and yet hear him say to you, I never knew you. You didn't come close enough. You didn't live full of my presence. We could stop right there. Case closed. Job well done. Message preached. Warning signal fired. Break for lunch, right? But here's the thing. That's only one half. And while that message is very true, a very relevant message for us today, I believe, and not just today, but in culture today, hence why I kind of preached it last time. God has been revealing to me that there is actually another way to live empty. Another way. 
For many of us who sincerely prayed the prayer and received salvation, whether you've been for a long time or you're newly a Christian, that type of thing, you don't have to, you usually don't have to warn us about living an empty life. You don't have to warn us about undercompensating for our faith. I get it. I need to pursue the Lord. I need to wake up every morning and read my Bible and pray and quit smoking and stop sleeping around. I don't sleep around. Serve the church and live on mission for Jesus. I'm describing us, people at large. Don't worry. You say that I need to lose my life. I will lose my life. I will volunteer every Sunday. I'll give all my money away. I'll knock on every door for Jesus. I will not live empty. We're determined. I am determined. This is what I've given my life to. Serving the church. Sharing the gospel. Losing for Jesus. So heroic. And yet, if I'm being very honest and transparent with you this morning, which I should be, as my dad said last week, if I'm not being honest, what am I doing up here? The last few, when I was first putting this together, I wrote the last few months or the last year. And then God said to me, no, Casey, the last few years, I have felt so empty. I'm being honest, being transparent. Since moving back to Calgary almost a year ago, I, I, all that emptiness, I nearly came to an end. I came with so much ambition and drive to help get the church off the ground. I had lots of ideas and strategies and initiatives. But here's the thing. The more I tried, the more I felt like I was just hitting this wall over and over and over again. And not with our church, not blaming the church. It was with me. It was with my purpose. I kept hitting something and I kept getting emptier until I finally broke a few weeks ago. I broke. Believe it or not, God showed me that I have not been living very full. But my problem was not that I had been undercompensating for my faith. I was losing all right. I was losing everything. My problem was that I was actually overcompensating for my faith. I want to share with you with the remainder of our time this morning uh, a story that comes from the book of Judges in the Old Testament. And it's a bit of a difficult story. I warn you now. It's not a light, fluffy story. Where's Jesus the Good Shepherd? It's not in this story. But give you some context. If you've never read the book of Judges, after Israel had entered into the promised land, the land that God promised to Abraham, they divide up their lands and whatnot, and they were ruled by no king. They were supposed to be ruled by God a God-ruled people. Unfortunately, they didn't always follow God. And they had seasons where God would therefore raise up a leader who became known as a judge. He would judge the people, hence the name judges. He would lead them until he died off, he or she, there were female ones, after which either another judge would rise up to take their place or the people would just ditch God and walk away. And unfortunately, they kind of biased towards that than the other. Isn't that kind of sad? They had just gone through the desert, freed from Egypt, promised land here, and they're like, see you, God, don't need you anymore. That's kind of what happened. And so in Judges chapter 11, it tells the story of a man named Jephthah. There's a name for your child, Jephthah. You know how many times I misspelt it? There are so many H's in that name, Jephthah. One of God's judges is who he was, not to belabor that. 
And from his story comes my main point for today. So, like I said, we're reading a little bit of scripture today, but stories are good. So the, the scripture is going to be on, and I'm going to read it, and then we're going to unpack it together. Judges 11. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead, hence Gileadite. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a group of adventurers gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites, those were a people, made war on Israel, who the Gileadites were part of, Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead, they had no reply. They said to him, uh, nevertheless, we're turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be our head over all who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, the Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. Then it says, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from there, he advanced against the Ammonites. And then Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of tambourines. She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched because I've made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. Guess what? Jephthah fulfills his vow, and he sacrifices his daughter to the Lord. Oh, if, if you've never read that story, I tell you, this weird stuff is in the, in the Bible. And you're probably thinking, wow, that is really dark and depressing. And it is. And I've read this story a number of times throughout my whole life, and I can never get past that last part, that he would actually sacrifice his only daughter because of a vow he made to the Lord. But a few weeks ago, I was reading this story in my morning devotions, and God showed me something that I haven't seen before. I've read it many times. 
When you read the story, it's obvious that Jephthah was a very charismatic and courageous leader. Right in verse 1, it says, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. God had appointed him to be so. And adventurers gathered around him and followed him. Not only that, but when Jephthah was made leader over the people of Gilead to fight against the Ammonites, it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. In other words, he was filled with God's spirit. He was full of that oil that we've been talking about. And this is significant. Why? Because in the Old Testament, Jesus had not yet ascended into heaven, like I said earlier, which means the Holy Spirit wasn't accessible to everyone. God only filled very specific people for very specific tasks. Why is that important? Because it means it's a clear indicator that God approved of Jephthah. Filled with the spirit, given everything he needed to fulfill the purpose God had given him. The guy had it made. As far as Christians or followers of God go, he was like an elite follower. He was full of the Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and the same Spirit that we have access to today. So what happened? What went wrong? The guy had it made. God fills Jephthah with his Spirit, and then just before battle, Jephthah makes this vow to God. Why? If you give me the victory, I will sacrifice whatever comes out of my door to meet me. What? Like, where does that come from? What caused him to make a vow? He'd already been filled with the Spirit. The people were already following him. He must have been on fire, just ready to blaze into battle. And yet something happened. Something God showed me. Something distracted Jephthah. In behavioral science, which is what Lauren and I studied in university, we are taught that often a person's origin story can help to explain their future actions and decisions. We don't just learn that in school, but that was really emphasized in our degree. Both bad things and good things can affect our future behavior. Do you remember the beginning of Jephthah's story? That's the part I'd never seen. I kept reading the story, and I would always hit the end and think, ugh. To change, turn the page. It's like, ah, oh, cool story, bad ending. In the beginning, it said that his father was Gilead, but his mother was a prostitute. And Gilead's real wife, not the prostitute, bore him more sons, and as they grew up, they rejected Jephthah. You're not one of us. You have no place here. You are not deserving of our family's inheritance. And they drove him away. Yet despite Jephthah's rejection from his own people, God had created him and appointed him to be a great leader. It's so clear in all those examples, he was just great. But could it be that the beginning of Jephthah's story, the origins of his life, had given him an inaccurate view of what he was worth, what he deserved and what he didn't deserve? Perhaps this is why he appears to doubt his acceptance later on, saying, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Will I really be your head? And when he finally believes him, it says that Jephthah steps out and he sends a message to the king of Ammon, which is a lot of verses. I don't have time to read it, but it's a brilliant 
message. He highlights the promises of God and he challenges Ammon for their hostility. And yet, kind of funny, the king, it says he pays no attention to it. It just kind of goes over his head, I think. It's kind of like, you know, when you, you come up with a brilliant uh, comeback to a bully and they've got nothing for you. And they're just like, I don't know, I'm just going to punch you. That's essentially what happened with the enemy here. Jephthah was full of wisdom and brilliant. And these people, it just went over their heads. But then Jephthah is, is filled with God's spirit. And I believe at that moment, something happened. At that moment, two worlds collided inside of him. And as he became, becomes filled with the power, the purity, and holiness of God's spirit, it crashes into the rejected and weathered heart of his past. Everything from his life, every word of hatred and scorn, every abuse and lie he was told, it all at once screams at him, you are unworthy. You don't deserve the blessing. You haven't earned it. No good thing just comes to you. Does that sound familiar at all? It's what our world teaches us. Good things don't just come to you. You have to earn them. So what does Jephthah do? He tries to earn it. He tries to make himself worthy of God's favor, his spirit. Lord, if you will grant me the victory, I vow to sacrifice. So here's what, here's what God's been showing me. No Christian doubts God's power and ability to do great works. You have to be kind of crazy to, to doubt that because you look at the Bible. He's great. What we doubt is our worthiness to be used by God to do great things. So Jephthah makes a vow. It's not necessarily wrong that he made a vow because vows were actually a common thing in the Old Testament. They're kind of like fasting. They're kind of like making a commitment to the Lord. But it is what he vows that is significant. He says, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Think it through logically. Jephthah probably didn't think some little wild goat was going to scamper out of his front door. I mean, maybe, maybe he had marital problems and maybe he was kind of hoping to end them. It's a little bit dark. I don't think that was the case. You never know. More likely, more likely than that, assuming that's not the case. I think, I believe he knew that something or someone of great value and worth to him was going to come through that door. And in order to become worthy of God's blessing and earn his protection and favor, earn this newfound acceptance with his family that he's never had, earn the victory, he believes he needs to sacrifice something of great worth. Who should come running to meet him but his one and only daughter? The scripture makes it so clear. He had no other son, no other daughter. And she's singing and she's dancing. She was a virgin. Why is that significant? What's with all these virgins, right? Virginity in the Bible is not just your sexual virginity. It's symbolic. Symbolic of holiness, purity, God-givenness. It's God-given, not earned, not deserved, just like children. They're miracles of life that God blesses us with. But Jephthah takes his one and only daughter, 
a virgin, a gift from God. And he sacrifices her to God in order to fulfill a vow, one that God never asked him for in the first place. See, God sent his one and only son, Jesus, bit of a parallel there, to die for us as a sacrifice. He was pure. He was holy without sin. He was given by God, not because we were worthy of him, but because God so loved us. And what his sacrifice did once and for all was shatter the standards of the world that would call you and I unworthy, that would seek to empty us of everything God has for his children, unworthy of his blessing, his pleasure, his joy, peace, and comfort, unworthy of our eternity with him, not as slaves, but as children. The unfortunate reality for many of us today, speaking for myself, is that we're still struggling with our worth. We're struggling to believe that God actually knew us before we were ever here, that he couldn't wait to walk with us and to work with us and to know us, that God had appointed us for a great purpose simply because he loves us. And we find it hard to not believe what the world has taught us, that we have to earn it. Sadly, even the church can fall into this mantra. Unless you read your Bible and pray every day, Give all your money, lose your life. Sound familiar? You are unworthy of God's love, his blessing, and eternity. You will be shut out. Am I contradicting my own message? No, I'm not. Because all those things are true, Jesus still calls us to lose, very clear. But because we live in a broken world, a society that teaches us that we're unworthy of blessing and purpose and love unless we earn it, and because we have an enemy whose sole purpose is to steal kill and destroy. I felt like God said to me, Casey, remind them there's an enemy. You have to remind them there's an enemy because he is actually really clever. If he can't get you to be that blatant follower who's just like, gonna let my light burn out, gonna not lose my life, I wanna live for this life. Some of us do that, but if he can't get you to do that and you are sincere about your faith, what will he do? He'll do the opposite. He'll say, you're not worth it. He'll, he'll make you hit that wall. He will empty you of everything you have to make you feel like a failure in your faith. And we can end up like Jephthah, where God's spirit collides with our broken life and our losing for Jesus, rather than coming from a place of relationship, trust, and love, comes from a place of past rejection and hurt. It becomes a duty where we play by the world's rules and we overcompensate for our faith. Sacrificing things in our lives that were God-given gifts, a sacrifice he never asked for in the first place. What am I talking about? What have we sacrificed? I mentioned earlier, I finally broke. Broke a few weeks ago. I was sitting in my dad's office with my parents. Bev probably could hear us. And I felt just completely empty. I had no drive. I had no hope. I could see no future. I sound like I'm exaggerating. I am not. I've experienced deep, dark depression once previously in my early life. And I experienced it again. And I felt it. And I felt it lurking and creeping. And even even the desire to keep living was sucked out. Empty. But as I sat there... 
my parents were just, they didn't really know what to do. They're kind of inviting the Holy Spirit and stuff. And God brought this story to my mind. He brought Jephthah to my mind. And he showed me, he said, Casey, that's you. That I've been living a lie, believing that I'm unworthy of God's spirit, his blessing and favor, unless I sacrifice my everything for it. My well-being for it, my health for it. Rather than living out of the fullness, I was emptying myself continually trying to be worthy of it. And for me, it wasn't my only daughter. I don't have a daughter yet. For me, what God showed me was actually in the days afterwards, I kept asking him about it. I knew I was Jephthah. I knew I was overcompensating, but what? And for me, it was my youth. I'm going to try not to choke up. My whole life, if you get to know me, for my whole life, I have lived older than I am. I've always taken pride in that and considered it to be a strength. The most unmillennial millennial you will ever meet is what someone once said. 15 going on 30 is what another person said. And I've owned that. That has become my identity. I've seen that as strength, as a benefit. But where some youthful tendencies are actually healthy, such as youthful naivety or curiosity or creativity, I had thrown all of that out, all the good with the bad. I sacrificed joy and hobbies and skills and passions and interests. Parts of myself that God had given to me. I became so fixated on winning the war of ministry that I sacrificed the very outlets of joy God had given me to provide me with strength to do so. And whenever I would hit a wall, instead of trusting God to make a way, I would just sacrifice more and lose more, whatever it took to make it happen. Ask my wife. The more I sacrificed, the emptier I felt and the harder I would push until finally, God showed me that I was trying to carry something he never asked me to carry. I was trying to use grace I had not been given. God never called any of us to build his church. That's Jesus' job to do. Our call, first and foremost, is to be sons and daughters of the Father. Dearly loved children with unique personalities and quirks and gifts each with a God-given purpose and appointment, each fully worthy of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. What Jephthah failed to realize and what I'm now trying to believe is that our worth as God's children is not determined by what we give to God. It is discovered when we get with God regularly as our Father. And when I finally saw it, it like came crashing in And I broke and I wept. I do not cry. I wept and wept more than I ever have before. And as I was was hyperventilating, I felt this this buzzing all throughout my body. Maybe it's because I didn't have enough oxygen. But I felt like God said, no, I'm actually flowing in you. And I am filling all the empty places of your life that you have kept empty up till this point. The areas I had overcompensated and sacrificed. 
And church, today, I believe God wants you and I to regain what we've lost because the enemy is a thief and he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And if he can't take you out of the game by distracting you, then he will take you out of the game by making you feel worthless and causing you to burn yourself out for this thing. And that's not what God's called us to. You might be like me today and you've sacrificed dreams and desires that God gave you when you were younger. We've sacrificed God-given gifts, talents, and interests. We've reduced them to lesser than. Lesser than what? Ministry? Did you know that the greatest ministry God is going to pull out of you is going to come from the gifts that he's placed inside of you? What intuitions has he given you? Maybe you're great at athletics. Maybe you're great at math. Maybe you're great with people. Maybe you're great with kids or arts and crafts. What about writing? What about public speaking? What about building or renovating or refinishing? What areas of your life have you buried the light God has given you? Put it under a bowl instead of putting it on its stand to shine for the world around you. To bring glory to God through your good deeds, the gifts he gave you. For some people, we've actually sacrificed good relationships. People God gave you to help you relax and rest, be strengthened, be challenged. Some of us have even sacrificed family, taken for granted. This is true, sadly, of many pastors who end up sacrificing their marriages and children for ministry. They fail to realize that God actually gave them their families as their first ministry and as a source of joy and strength. And God wants you to shine your light in your home with your family. He wants you to be a godly example of honor, loyalty, selflessness. For some of us, we have sacrificed our health, both physical and mental. We live in a society that's so busy, so purpose-driven. And so we push and push and push all for success. But God himself took a Sabbath, a time to rest. And did he need it? Probably not. He was God. But he wanted to model rest for us so that we could model rest for the world and rest for our health, which is a gift. The bottom line is, there are some of us today who simply just need a loving kick in the pants because we've been undercompensating our faith. We don't realize what we have to lose for eternity. That's the message for you. Stop being foolish. But I believe that many of us, especially in our busy working, overachieving culture, are sitting empty or are in danger of being empty because we feel like we've sacrificed so much already that we have nothing left to give. You've lost for Jesus and you don't feel like you can lose anymore. So what happens when you hit empty? We're almost done here. What happens when you realize you've lost something that God actually gave you? Is it possible to regain it? I believe it is. We're wrapping this up. I wanna close with a final story from the Bible. You're getting your whole Bible education today. One final story that I believe wraps up perfectly what we've been looking at. And it comes from the book of 2 Kings. There's a story of a woman whose husband has died while serving a prophet named Elisha. And without giving you more background, I'll just jump into it. The story picks up with the woman crying out to Elisha as he's passing by. And she says, your servant, my husband, is dead. 
And you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. This lady had lost her husband, who had given his life for ministry, and now the enemy is coming to do what? To take what she has left, what God had given her. Elisha replies to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing at all except a little oil. Except a little oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and afterwards shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. Is there a part of your life that feels empty today? Maybe you've just learned to deal with it. Maybe you've just learned to get over it. Maybe you've learned to drag it around with you. Do you feel like the enemy is looming over you, threatening to take what little you have left? This woman had nothing to give except for a little oil. And if you're here today and you profess to be a follower of Jesus, then I have good news for you, good news for me. No matter how empty you feel, you still have just a little bit of oil in you. And God is inviting you to bring to him all the empty jars of your life, every part that you have sacrificed, every part that you have that run dry, And when you and I are faithful to pour out what little we have left, God is faithful to pour in to every area of our lives and the oil will not stop until every last jar is filled. For Jesus said, what is our big but for today? John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and life to the full, not empty but full. Would you please stand with me this morning? Thank you for joining us today for the Church of Rock Calgary podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us or have any questions, please email info at cotrcalgary.ca.